Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Happy New Year, and welcome back. In today's episode... I'm talking about the past, present and future of the United Kingdom with the political scientist and historian Mike Kenny. What is it that holds the UK together and what is it that could break the union apart? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. To subscribe for a special rate to get every new issue and access to the LRB's peerless archive, just go to LRB dot me slash ppf that's lrb dot me slash ppf mike the journalist alex massey said that the key to understanding the union of the united kingdom is to remember or recognize just how weird it is it's a very very unusual political arrangement i think the word he used was its strangeness and we live in it, right? So we tend to take it for granted. I think it's true that most politicians for certainly our lifetimes, for much of that, have taken it for granted. But it is really odd. And there isn't anything like it. It's not like other federal states. I think Massey calls it a composite state. Is it odd? I mean, is that how, how it strikes you? Particularly, the more you think about it, the more you write about it in its history. There's something very unusual going on here. So I think the UK is very unusual, certainly if you look at uh, many other roughly comparative states in the world today. And its unusual nature, I think, comes from a, a number of different sort of interlinked features. One is that this historical process of different unions being forged, each with England, which is the largest part of the entity that emerges as the United Kingdom. And Whilst, of course, there are other union states, it's unusual, not entirely unique, but unusual to have one part that is so large and so preeminent within that wider formation. But then, of course, the other sort of linked feature to it is that this union state emerges within the confines of a model that's dominated by the idea of parliamentary sovereignty. And there's no codified constitution, no formal constitutional protections for the different levels of government that are formed, and an immense amount of discretion remains within the sort of purview of central government, which means it can make really quite radical reforms, which we'll probably come to discuss, but also creates the condition of, of a degree of uncertainty about the status and position in constitutional terms of those other states. And then I just think the third feature that, that's just worth reminding ourselves of is that this is an archipelago of, of, of islands of, of different sizes that are sort of formed, come together as a conglomerate, within which there is remark, a remarkable degree of diversity in terms of national traditions, of regional cultures, of languages. And all of these different elements are there in play, and they are actually coexisting within what is really relatively a very small geographical compass, certainly compared to many other states. So I think those are the, the sort of unusual features we should, we should remind ourselves of. I think for me, though, the, there is a cautionary point to, to make about this, which is that this comes from, actually from a, a book I was reading recently, a very good book by Alvin Jackson, a historian, who's written the history of a number of different United Kingdoms and pointed out that actually in the early 19th century, there are a number of different composite monarchies that come together, unions of crowns, forged particularly in the early decades, in the early years of, of the 19th century in the context of geopolitical conflict and war and the French Revolution. And the United Kingdom, our United Kingdom is one of a number of such formations. And if you view it in that way, what's really striking is that the UK is pretty much the sole survivor from that gang of states. The one other entity that does survive from that period is Canada, 
But of course, Canada turns itself into a fully fledged federation, which our own UK does not. So I think that's an interesting sort of historical perspective. We, we are very unusual, but maybe back in the day, we weren't quite so much. And Matthew's writing about this as a Scot. And so the Anglo-Scottish Union is the origin of this story. And the other relationships that make up the union are in their formation a bit more familiar in the sense that Wales was conquered basically by England. And the Northern Irish case, which is very unusual, unique in some ways, but it is still a story of partition. The Anglo-Scottish Union is neither conquest nor partition. And it's an arrangement of mutual advantage, as I understand it. I think that's the idea. It's, you know, it's meant to be beneficial to, to both crowns that join together. It's one in which Scotland retained all sorts of traditional modes of government and of law. So it's also quite diverse. Is the Anglo-Scottish bit, which is at the heart of this, I mean, the other bits really matter too, but it's at the heart of the origin story. Is the Anglo-Scottish bit, even in the context of what you just described there, these unions of crowns that happened, so this one is much earlier, but these unions of crowns that happened in the early 19th century, is it still the thing that, that gives it this peculiar dynamic? And of course, we should also say the other thing that makes the UK different is that for some periods of its history, it's been the most powerful political unit in the world. I mean, it did it did acquire a quite astonishing global empire, which is not true of some of the other things that we talked about. And indeed, Canada was part of its empire. It wasn't the other way around. So this union of mutual advantage, I mean, there was serious advantage to it, clearly, because it produced extraordinary benefits to both parties. But is it is that the way to think about it then or now, actually, that it works because both sides can see the advantage of it, unlike one having conquered or, or there being a requirement to draw a boundary? I think you're right to point to those sort of very different uh, processes and and uh, which lead up to the the different unions we're talking about. And yes, there's there's a greater degree of familiarity in a sense to the Welsh story, which is, as you say, a, a, a really rooted in conquest and and sort of domination that arises from that, and then pretty significant integration within this sort of Anglo-Welsh state that exists before the uh, union with Scotland. And then, of course, in the Irish case, this is much more familiar. This looks more like a sort of colonial story, one in which partition arises um, in the early part of the 20th century in the wake of the First World War. Again, examples of partition are are familiar elsewhere. But the one coder I'd add to that, though, which is, I think, very distinguishing in the case of Northern Ireland, is that when partition turns out not to work, and when there's significant challenges to it arise in the form of the um, uh, militant republicanism in the 1960s and 70s, the civil rights movement, and then the, the politics of unionism, both the constitutional politics and the loyalist violence that emerges. When that happens, the only way of solving that, which is in the form of the Good Friday Agreement, takes a very distinctive, perhaps almost unique form. I mean, that is a really unusual, intricate, complex arrangement, which involves the different states, the UK and the Republic of Ireland that have been sort of integral to a degree suspending their sovereignty claims over this territory and allowing citizens within it to make unusual choices and freer choices about their citizenship. There are not many places in the Western world that have kind of resolved a territorial conflict in quite that way. But then I think you're entirely right to point to the distinctive properties of the Anglo-Scottish Union. And so much of that, the story of the formation of that union is rooted in the late 17th century, the prior existence of the Union of Crowns, the conflict between English and Scottish elites in that period. And then this, this extraordinary moment, really, in the 1690s, when for different reasons, both economic and the Scottish economy is on its knees, also religious. I mean, there's clearly an attempt in parts of the Scottish establishment to want to establish Scotland as a as a Protestant state. And in the wake of this, uh, this particular sort of much talked about episode, the Darien episode, where sort of national esteem is takes a real dent, a real beating, then, then this decision is made to form this, this uh, voluntary union, as it were. And I think on the English side, there's something very distinctive about the Anglo-Scottish Union. I mean, again, 
you've got to go back to that context and the very strong desire to ensure that the or to make sure that the Hanoverian succession is observed in Scotland, that Scotland doesn't become a, a, a Catholic country, which is then in cahoots with France. I mean, there's just a real geopolitical aspect to that interest. But as well, there are clear economic advantages in terms of pretty developed trade relationships with Scotland, which form one of the sort of pressures on the English and certainly on the Scottish side. I mean, the, the desire to get access to English trade and to England's colonies is an absolutely key dynamic there. In the round, I think that there is a sort of bargain, I think, in all of those entities that underpins the acceptance of union. And that is the British side, the British state will provide the sort of military security and shading into economic security within certain parameters. That's its primary responsibility. And that there will, none of those other entities will feel that they are sort of systemically excluded or discriminated against within the composite state. Now, of course, in the Irish case, that second condition isn't met for people on the on the nationalist side, and that's what causes you know significant amount of turbulence and conflict. But by and large, I think very very roughly, that's the sort of implicit contract here. And of course, you know that leads us into a discussion of when certain parts of the populations of these areas feel that the contract is not being observed. It, it's not surprising that if you describe that kind of political arrangement to expect there to be quite a lot of resistance to it. Some people will benefit from these advantages, but some won't. And yet, you know, I said at the beginning, in our lifetime, in the latter parts of our lifetime, it's been more contested, but certainly earlier on, and particularly, I think, in the middle years of the 20th century, it wasn't contested. But that is the exception, not the rule. I mean, clearly, the Anglo-Scottish Union was contested in different ways for most of the 18th century, with you know, all sorts of consequences. The Anglo-Irish Union was contested in various ways for most of the 19th century. And as we're going to come on to, a lot of it is up for grabs now. But there was a period from maybe the 1920s through to the 1960s, where it just became a background fact of political life in these islands that this is how we do it. But the fact that that's the exception, not the rule, means that presumably there needs to be an explanation of why that period was relatively more stable. Do you have an explanation for that? Why is the middle part of the 20th century the bit when people seem willing to take this for granted? And just to offer one possible explanation, but I'm not sure what's cause and what's effect here, you know, particularly the, the post-Second World War period, was relatively stable politically in other ways. It was strong two-party government in the UK, so that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party had representation across the different parts of the Union. Northern Ireland is always something of a separate case, but certainly Scotland and Wales. And it was also a period, relatively speaking, of a form of political consensus. Is that the precondition for the Union holding together, that the, the forces that operate in Westminster are able both to operate across the different parts of the Union relatively successfully, and also that there is a background consensus at play? I think the party system is undoubtedly a, a key contributing factor and certainly that the sort of high point of two-party politics in the post-war period. But I'd, I'd start the, the sort of answer there chronologically before that and partition and the way in which that um, is fairly quickly come to be understood on the British part as, as settling the Irish question means that there's some relief in taking these issues off the political table and actually being able to sort of get on with the other projects and causes that British politicians have tended to be more interested in. I mean, the other key contributing factor is warfare. And there's no doubt that actually the experience of the two global conflicts of the first half of the 20th century has I mean, it has complicated effects on the union, but certainly has a sort of unifying, creates the conditions for greater sense of unity. It makes the union very meaningful to people as people are engaged in a common endeavour. And that's the precursor to what is, I think, a really important moment in, it's almost in some ways, I think, the high point of the British Union, which is the Attlee government and the politics of the early 1950s, because that's the moment, obviously, we all think of the Attlee government in terms of its its sort of reforms, it's, it's the introduction of 
aspect of accentuation of the welfare state and nationalisation, a lot of that is framed in terms of a common British nationhood and sense of mission. I mean, the language of Britishness and of British nationalism absolutely runs through uh, the politics of that period. And in many ways, that is, I think, both a, has a spillover effect on the Union and is also a reflection of the greater sense of settlement. I think your point about the two-party system and the sort of degree to which that operates as, a, as both a stabilizing and an encompassing mechanism is a very good one, I think, from the 50s into the 60s. I think at that point, what happens is that British party politics is very adept, actually, at aggregating different kinds of nationalist and territorial claims and complaints and so on. British elections are run on a fairly common set of issues, though there always are territorial variations and there always, of course, are local and regional aspects to them. But really until the 1960s, I mean, you can talk about, it makes sense to talk about British elections as a sort of, almost a sort of singular space with some variations within them. From the late 60s onwards, not so much. So I, I, I myself do give quite a lot of weight, actually, to the, to the sort of encompassing role of British Party politics. And of course, once that factor begins to wane, it's not coincidental that we begin to see more conflict around the union. And as you say, with the Attlee government, it's, it's signal achievement still now is thought to be the creation of the National Health Service. And people don't often think, what nation are we talking about? It's sort of, I think then now, to, to a lesser extent, now it's taken for granted the nation is Britain. It's not the English Health Service. But of course, as we'll come on to, that's one of the things that's under strain. So what happens then in the, in the 60s and early 70s? So we have this somewhat exceptional period where the UK looks like a, a stable, almost a natural political entity. And like you say, then people can not worry about the things that consumed them at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century, and not spend their time thinking about home rule and think about other things instead. But from then to now, it's been a gradual process of not allowing politicians to put it on the back burner. What happens in the 60s and the early 70s? Clearly in Northern Ireland, what happens is violence. But in Scotland and Wales, nationalism, to many people's surprise, I think you know, particularly in electoral results, sort of comes from nowhere in some ways. The SNP, Welsh nationalists too, start to win seats in Parliament. Why? I mean, I think this, the, the, the answer to that has to really focus on some of the sort of exogenous shocks and you know, deep social and economic changes that affect the UK and, and many other countries in this period, of course. I think the changing or the, the sort of weakening of British manufacturing uh, is a very important part of this and the sort of slow, painful process of deindustrialization. Given that the urban economies of, of Wales and Scotland are so particularly, particularly Scotland, are so dependent upon um, the sort of centrality and success of those forms of production. Um, and then linked to that, I think, in the realm of politics is just the growing sense that British government is not able to deliver a sort of economic model which is still premised upon protecting those, the kind of core industrial, core manufacturing industries. And of course, that shifts again into the late 1970s when a form of politics emerges that says we shouldn't be trying to protect those. We should be opening up to the global economy. But even before then, it is clear that it's in, it's particularly in those areas that support, and as you say, it, it surprises commentators at the time, begins to emerge, particularly in some of the in by-elections, but also in the election of February 1974, really striking results for both the SNP and Plaid Cymru. So a lot of it, I think, is linked to the the combination of a sort of changing political economy, a real sense that government itself is not able to deliver on the aspects of the bargain which underwrites these relationships. And then I think beyond that, there is a kind of emerging focus upon devolution within party politics. There is a very, you know, there's a there's a deep and very fraught debate in the Labour Party and within the Conservatives as well, to a slightly lesser extent in the 70s, about is devolution needed? Do we need to do something here to actually head off to undercut this rising current? And I mean, it becomes very difficult. It gets caught up in the politics of the ailing Callaghan 
government after Wilson has an initial go at this. And there's just a sort of deep sense of uncertainty generated by the the re-emergence of home rule, but now in the context of economic and social crisis. And there's a feeling that British politics almost can't deal with the, the scale and nature of this issue. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One of the things I was really struck by reading your book and thinking about the history of the union, it is a truism that this political entity has tended to be governed by the Conservative Party in its different guises. It is the most successful political party anywhere in the world, and not just its longevity, but also the fact that it keeps winning elections. And it is the Conservative and Unionist Party. And the question of what the Conservatives' view of the union is has often been very important. And the accommodation with the possibility of home rule by Conservatives is an absolutely central question in British political history. And yet, the key moments seem to turn on the Labour Party. The Labour Party is actually, I think, and and I want to come to this because I am sure we're about to get another Labour government, which is where this conversation is leading. But another key moment, and this has been discussed quite a lot recently, actually not in the context of the union, but in the context of the EU, is in the late 80s. And it's sometimes identified with a very particular event, which is Jacques Delors, who just died, giving a speech at the Labour Party conference, persuading the Labour Party that had, in many of its different bits, been sceptical about the EU, the European Union, another union, that the EU was actually a model of a certain kind of social democratic politics that the Labour Party could embrace. And the willingness of the Labour Party to embrace that does go along with, it seems to go along with, a willingness to be more open to forms of devolution within the UK. There's a sort of spreading out, this this not tight, but what seems to most people like inevitable feature of British politics, Westminster sovereignty governing these islands, the bit of these islands that is Northern Ireland. When the Labour Party adopts a more flexible approach to the European Union, it does seem to go with a willingness to embrace a more open-ended view of devolution. And then we get a Labour government. Then we get one of those rare periods of Labour Party dominance, including a, a government that is powerful again in the different parts of the union, winning seats in Wales, winning seats in Scotland. And you get the devolution project of the late 1990s. That seems like the crucial moment in this story to where we are now. But as many people have pointed out, and you discuss this too, it's not completely clear that the Labour Party knew what it was doing. As well, it, it went through this philosophical shift in its attitude to the UK and the UK's place within Europe, and then the role of the different nations within the UK. But it was all quite pragmatic would be a polite word for it. Uh, wishful would be another word for it. Kind of, you know, this is just part of preparing for the 21st century. We're going to be a bit more loosey-goosey about how we do constitutional politics. Is that unfair? I think, I mean, to start with the role of the, the sort of European dimension and Jack Delors, I think you're right to point to that as a very important moment in, in the story of Labour's sort of shift or the shift to different parts of the Labour family towards devolution. I mean, it's important to note that that shift is underway already and that some of the debates, the really difficult debates of the 1970s have not been resolved, but there's been a there's been a movement. It's a very important moment when the Scottish Labour Party comes out in favour of devolution, and then that idea grows, and it grows particularly during the 1980s in the context of the Thatcher governments. What, what I think the sort of social European idea, or that conversion of much of the Labour Party to that idea, does is two things that are really important. One is it helps wean figures who would have associated themselves with the sort of put it crudely, the right or the left of Labour, away from their traditions, deep association with par- the idea of parliamentary democracy. And in particular, in terms of the, the right of a figure for a figure like Gateskill, of course, it's not just parliamentary democracy, it's also the Commonwealth. And that the association, the deep attachment to the Commonwealth as, in some sense, a sort of more important 
community of interest and belonging for the UK remains very important throughout into the 1970s uh, and beyond. And the the emergence of the European idea allows people to who associate with that or with the Benite tradition to come away from that very strong sort of understanding of the role of Parliament within the constitution. It also, I think, gives makes available to people a different language, a language about subsidiarity, regional development, and then a more kind of 1990s term of, of use, multi-level governance. All those ideas suddenly start bubbling up around uh, labour thinking and seminars in a way that um, they were just not there in the previous era. So I think that's an important part of that story. In institutional terms, I mean, obviously, when labour does introduce devolution, I mean, it makes a real difference that I mean, it's, it's absolutely integral to it. It's baked into the whole thing that the UK and all its parts are in the in the in the European Union, that they're part of the single market, that the, this makes it much easier to imagine having governments that are, in some sense, still working together and unlikely to have the sort of full range of conflicts that you may have over other issues. And so that's one element, key element of that, the whole sort of introduction, the implementation part of devolution through into the uh, 2000s. In terms of the, the introduction itself, your point about is this wishful thinking, is this pragmatic? I mean, you can see elements of both, I think. The pragmatism is political in that Blair inherits devolution, the commitment to devolution as part of a mandate that you just he just could not unpick. It just would not be possible at that time to walk away from that. There's a lot of speculation and suspicion, really, about his motives, how keen he really is on devolution at the time. There are some people, particularly in Scotland, but others as well, presenting a fairly radical vision of what devolution is about. This is the restoration of the Scottish Parliament. This is about the exercise of popular sovereignty on the part of the Scots. And that's language that Blair goes out of his way to avoid. That's not how he's thinking about this. He's thinking about how do you deliver on this pretty major reform in Scotland, and then you've kind of got to do something in Wales as well. How do you do that without alienating or annoying English voters in particular? And so I think that leads to a, a sort of different framing of devolution as a sort of, which becomes it's quite a sort of clever mix, really, of liberal reformism and more sort of small c conservative adaptation. The sort of argument is that really we're making these changes, but actually the British, the ship of state is sailing on. This is just a, a slightly different way in which we're going to do things, almost as if these changes were bolted on to the existing structure. Now, that actually worked in political terms. It solved some very pressing political challenges he faced within the Labour Party, and it, it seemed to work in terms of governance for some while. Of course, the underpinning condition there was that Labour was in power in all of these places. And there was a sort of lingering assumption that it, that would remain the case. The wishful bit is that looking back at this to make these changes and really try to sustain the argument that, that actually in some fundamental respects, the actual constitutional system hadn't been abridged, hadn't been amended, was never going to stand the test of time. And particularly if you put these changes in the context of the other significant reforms, Human Rights Act, Freedom of Information, that the kind of flotilla of, of significant reforms that Labour introduced. And for, for many in and around Blairite circles, this looked and felt like becoming a sort of more modern European polity. This looked like a sort of updating exercise. And so there's still a sort of, there's a residual haziness about quite what it is you've created there, quite what the constitutional status of these governments is. And ultimately, in political terms, what happens when different parties are in power in those places? Well, we know what happens <laughs> in the sense that both in Scotland and in the UK, Part of what looks a bit wishful about it was the idea that this would somehow defang Scottish nationalism. It had the opposite effect. Over the following couple of decades, the SNP became the dominant party in Scotland, leading ultimately to a referendum. This is the story of two referendums. And then at the Westminster level, a Conservative government, first a coalition, but then when the coalition is replaced by a majority Conservative government, you get the Brexit referendum. And you know, I remember at the time, I'm sure you do too, 
it felt like these two referendums were very closely connected in some way and that their implications would feed into each other. But it wasn't at all clear how. And then, and I think even now, people had plausible arguments that pointed in completely opposite directions as to what the impact Brexit would have on the UK, on this union. For one set of people, it seemed obvious that it would break it apart because Scotland had voted to stay in, England had voted to leave. It was a an English vote that took the UK out, essentially. And Scotland under the SNP would demand another referendum, and this referendum would more likely be won. The counter view was that some of these tensions within the union would lessen with the UK being outside of the European Union. And actually, it would open the door to something closer to nothing like the actual politics of the 50s and 60s, but something closer to what you call genuine national elections. General elections would be elections across the UK, Northern Ireland always being an exception here. So we're, what, what, how many years are we on from, well, we're, we're nearly eight years on from the Brexit vote and we're, whatever it is, five years on from actually leaving the European Union. Do we have any idea yet which of these two scenarios is true? I, I think you can still argue for both in a way. You can still argue that Brexit is likely to break up the UK and you can argue, and quite a lot hangs on this year's general election, and you can argue that we're already starting to see the creation of a more coherent UK-wide politics. And as always with politics, a lot of this then gets wrapped up with events because the SNP is having a rough old time at the moment, as all parties do that have been in power for a long time. So whatever Labour's wishfulness about, you know, we are now the natural party of government of the UK, well, you are for a decade, but nothing lasts more than a decade. The SNP's view, we are now the natural party of government in Scotland, well, you are for a decade, but nothing lasts for more than a decade. In the end, the, the forces of political gravity will get you, corruption and all the rest. So it's these two referendums, which look like they ought to be really clarifying events, it's as confusing as ever to know what the direction of travel is here. Is the UK heading towards breakup or or greater cohesion? I'm not sure I know whether Brexit is pointing one way or the other. Do you? Oh, I'm tempted to say it's too early to tell um, because I think, it, I think it will be some while before we can be a bit more certain about that. I mean, I, I do agree with you that the the two, and I, I tried to sort of to talk about this in the book, how these two referendums are really interlinked and interact in all sorts of ways. That said, I mean, I, I am struck in many ways by the sense in which, certainly on the British side within Whitehall and Westminster, talking to a lot of officials and politicians, as I was doing in, in the context of the Brexit referendum, just trying to understand their thinking about the domestic union. It does. It struck me then, and I, I think it even more now, that Brexit, the advent of Brexit so soon, that referendum so soon after 2014, meant that I'm not sure that the administrative establishments have fully processed what happened in Scotland. There was a sense, and I've tried to capture this in, in the book, there's a sense of, of almost psychic sort of shock and a sort of nervous breakdown. You remember when that poll is published just in the run-up to the September 2014 vote in, in Scotland, the opinion poll comes out suggesting that there's a small lead for independence. And in fact, people working on the British side of the, the, the sort of union side of that campaign were already seeing polling that showed that opinion was shifting. Now, that had an immense shock. And I also think the aftermath of that referendum is a really important moment. I remember that that autumn vividly because as, as somebody working on these things, it was really weird to be in a context where there were debates about the territorial constitution all over the place. And England joined that conversation as well. And that there's something about that moment which I don't think has been fully absorbed in a way and processed. That said, I mean, Brexit clearly, as you say, there were different, immediately different interpretations of Brexit. Some people said it will lead to breakup. Others that I remember talking to, to Conservative MPs telling me this will be, you know, it'll be difficult for a few years, but this may lead to a restoration of the union as a more sort of coherent self-governing entity. I, I think in terms of trying to judge it, what would we look at? Well, there are two or three, I suppose, lessons really that that did come out of Brexit, which are going to create the conditions for the sort of politics, territorial politics that emerges after it, that, that will shape that. I mean, one of them is that 
put pretty simply, when the majority of English people express their preference for a very big, over a very big constitutional question, they were going to get their way. And in some shape or form, now we all know that for years afterwards, how to deliver that and quite what leaving would mean became this the source of huge political and constitutional turbulence. But ultimately, that was the most important dynamic moving into that, or that was, the, that was in a sense, the untrumpable element of that particular of the crisis that followed. And, you know, that, I think, laid very bare the asymmetry of power within the UK Union. I know that sounds like a very obvious point, but I think, you know, that there had, certainly in the, the more sort of, in the early good years of devolution, when there was very little overt conflict around devolution, I mean, there was a lot of talk about, are we moving in a kind of quasi-federal direction? Is this a sort of process that will just continue unfolding until we get to something that looks like a federation? I think at a fairly elemental level, Brexit put a stop to that. And then in more concrete terms, it created conflicts which have a very important afterlife in policy and institutional terms. One of those was all that debate, you may remember, about the powers coming back from Brussels in devolved areas. Should they go first to, you know, back to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, or should the British state, sort of the British government, hold on them? as it wanted to do for a while anyway, because it was suddenly so concerned about creating its own internal market. And suddenly the prospect of divergence in areas like agriculture, fishing, I mean, that, that you know, potentially had immense consequences. The inability to sort of solve that easily, if you remember, it ended up really with Boris Johnson's government just by fiat saying through this mechanism, the Internal Market Act, we are basically going to create a system which which effectively revolves around English preferences and to an extent curtails some devolved autonomy. That, I think, has been a very important and significant and, and under uh, underplayed element, actually, a consequence of Brexit, which is, you know, it, it will create, will infuse relationships between the territorial governments to come and Labour will inherit that as a challenge it needs to deal with. The other point that, again, it's obvious, but I think worth stressing is that the overriding of the so-called Sewell Convention, so this is the convention that was this informal convention, of course, uncodified, was one of the conventions that was introduced early on in devolution to get to make sure that there weren't problems when the UK government needed to legislate in areas of default competence. That convention, which ran around, it was hardly ever breached. It was breached, I think, something like nine times during the course of the of the Brexit, passage of the Brexit legislation. And that convention really matters in the Scottish and Welsh political communities. And for it to be so easily and repeatedly breached, I think has, again, sort of created a different mood, a more, a more suspicious, more mutually wary perspective. Now, that then absolutely will be part of the sort of context that Labour will now inherit, even if it's successful at the UK level in the next election, and even if Scottish Labour at the next Edinburgh election is in power there as it is in Wales. So I want to ask you about the, the future and where this is going. But another event that has made a real difference to this story is the COVID pandemic. And again, I think like with Brexit, it pulls in two different directions. So on the one hand, the pandemic is a unifying event. It empowers the Westminster government in various ways because it's a national crisis. It's not quite a war, though the language of war is not far away in how it's discussed. On the other hand, it really lays bare the difference between the different parts of the UK, not least because the different parts of the UK have different responses to the pandemic. And suddenly we start talking about things like the Anglo-Welsh border as a real thing, like crossing that border makes a difference, something that had never been discussed before. And it also raised a question, which I know for some people is meant to be part of the point of devolved government, which is people can do it differently. I mean, there's no point in it, right? If you can't do it differently, if you're given these powers so that you can just follow the lead of the dominant power. And there should be an advantage to that. They do it differently. So you can see what works, you know, classic Blairite formulation, see what works in response to something like a pandemic. But politics gets in the way. Was that always a pipe dream? that out of a devolved UK, what you would actually get is a sort of laboratory of 
experimental ways of governing so that you, the different parts could learn from each other. I mean, there was a bit of that, I think, in COVID. Am I right in saying? it's One shouldn't be completely cynical that somehow party politics will always just block. You know, if someone else does it better, you'll rubbish it because it's not to your advantage that someone else is doing it better than you do. But there was a bit of that. I mean, COVID did, for all of the tensions, highlight some of the ways in which this can work? Or is that too wishful? I, I don't think it's it's entirely wishful. I, I mean, I think it, it's certainly the case that the sort of laboratory aspect of devolution uh that there hasn't been a lot of dividend in terms of that and as you say the that's often been reduced to a pretty sort of crass kind of political point scoring uh, element um at the same time i think there's there's a bit of a difference here between the sort of political level and the administrative i mean i was struck sort of talking to people i was mostly focused on on whitehall but actually how for reasons of practical administration, how much engagement there is between departments in Whitehall, officials in them, and uh, their counterparts in these other governments is is considerable and much more than is is obviously publicly apparent. And I think there has been some learning actually, and some in I mean, COVID I don't think is the best example of it. Actually, it's often it's been away from the political fire and when things haven't been in an emergency mode. But I, I do think on on COVID itself. I think the the thing we have to remember here is, and it really complicates any judgment about this, is the outcomes. And so I, I, for the book, tried to to see what difference did it make that some of these powers over the behavioral rules and over the health service in these different places were devolved. You know, was it the case? Can you see on any indicator a sort of significant difference between them? Because you'll remember that, you know, that during the course of the COVID years, we were always hearing about slightly differently timed announcements and different rules that were often sort of height has really been quite significant. And the fact is, I mean, it, you know, as you know, even judging the outcomes of COVID isn't straightforward, but on, on you know, the sort of most familiar metrics like excess mortality rates and so on, it really didn't make a big difference. I mean, there really isn't a huge divergence in, uh, from Northern Wales, Scotland and England. And but those studies seem to be sort of landing on the idea that there's actually quite a lot of proximity between them. And that then if you stand back and think, well, how did the UK do overall? Well, our performance wasn't as bad as was often claimed during the course of the pandemic. But overall, it looks pretty mediocre. We were certainly not in the top group of European performers. So... What do we learn from that? Well, I mean, one thing is it could be that actually, despite the sort of rhetoric about about all these differences and about doing things differently, particularly in Wales, where where I think Mark Drakeford did try to, particularly towards the to the latter edge, end of COVID, the latter half of it, did try to actually be a little bit more interventionist and uh, was probably a bit more restrictive on some points. Overall, at aggregate level, it doesn't make a big difference. Now, that may be because the key decisions were actually made by the British government. So it may be that furlough, the furlough scheme, which, of course, was uh, Rishi Sunak's great triumph, it's the Treasury that mattered. And actually, it was those things that probably made more of a difference than some of the behavioural rules that we all, of course, as citizens, obsessed about. Or it may be that actually those governments were really a little bit more dependent on the UK than they cared to admit publicly. And there is evidence of that. Perhaps inevitably there was more resource, there was more scientific input at the UK level. There was a tendency to to want to track what British government were doing, as well as a lot of frustration that the way in which Johnson in particular handled um, the the sort of choreography of announcements and so on. Now, one of the things I think is really interesting struck struck me about the COVID inquiry is that is a number of different UK government ministers who've been in, who've been appearing before that hearing have sort of rather quietly and perhaps a little glibly come to the conclusion that it would have been better really had British government handled this for the whole UK. It doesn't make sense on an issue like this to have devolved governments handling them, which, I mean, is a, is a faintly extraordinary judgment given that they are giving evidence in a hearing that that is really highlighting the chaos and the sort of, you know, the, the, the incoherence of much of the British government's approach to decision making. And also, I think, given it's sort of very illustrative, that is, I think, of the way in which many British politicians have not really got the legitimacy point 
here that, yes, maybe on functional terms, it may not have made that much of a difference if Boris had been announcing the, the rules for Scotland or Nicola Sturgeon, but it would have made a massive difference in terms of perceptions and the perceived legitimacy of decisions being made by a government that is perceived in all parts of the UK as being unduly biased towards the interests of London and the South East. I mean, we saw it even in England with the, the Andy Burnham and the city regional mayors revolved in, in uh, October 2020. Exactly the same point about legitimacy. And I, I think the sort of blindness to that point is really rather revealing. Though at the same time, there's a challenge for devolutionists here because here was, you know, here really was something where it looked like devolution should make a big difference. And overall, it really didn't. So I want to give you some scenarios for this forthcoming general election. I'm going to assume Labour's going to win because they are going to win. But there are different ways Labour could win. So Labour could win as a minority government. And a minority government in Westminster would still be dependent, presumably, on some votes on on SNP support, other minority party support, allowing the Conservatives to claim, as they have done successfully at various points in recent British political history, that Labour is dependent upon nationalists to be able to govern the UK. Only only the Tories can, only the Conservatives can govern the UK as a national party. The alternative, which I think is as likely, maybe more likely, is Labour wins a majority. And then you do have a party committed to the union, governing the whole of the union and representing the whole of the union, because that will only happen if Labour does well in Scotland and in Wales. But if that happens, you've got a kind of rump Conservative Party. It could be a wipeout for the Conservatives. I mean, this could be catastrophic for them, but they will still be the opposition. And there will then be a temptation under those conditions, I think, for the Conservatives to become more overtly the party of English nationalism. And actually for the Conservative opposition to be the ones pushing against the union, because it's there in various strands of conservatism at the moment, that the union is a kind of con, a a Scottish con, and that a majority Labour government might give them something to rail against. So say that scenario, which should be the one that cements the union, Labour governing the union as a majority party in Westminster with representation across the union, that might also create the conditions for what may be the thing that's most ultimately dangerous to the union, which is the conservative and unionist party finally give up on it. If the next uh, general election produces a result in which there's some kind of reliance upon SNP MPs, I mean, I find it I find it hard to imagine that there could be a formal coalition just because of the centrality of the constitutional question and what Starmer has said about that. But if there's any sense of hint of, of dependency or reliance or some sort of deal, then, yeah, the English question, the West Lothian question comes back with a vengeance. There's something of an irony to that, given that in 2015, the Conservatives introduced this complicated set of rules to deal with these issues when English legislation was previously being voted on by uh, Scottish and Welsh and Northern Irish MPs. And this became a sort of big part of the aftermath of, of the 2014 referendum. Five years later, another different Conservative government uh, actually suspends, just abolishes those rules. Nobody complains. All the MPs hated them, didn't really understand them. They were too complicated. And the circumstances in which they might make sense just hadn't arisen. But I think the desire, the drive to take them out of play, to remove them is quite indicative, actually, of where the of parts of the Conservative Party have gone. They did that because they, I think they wanted to send a big signal that they were not comfortable with the idea of legislative consent. I mean, I mentioned it earlier in the context of the the Sewell Convention, but here was a kind of device that had been created to sort of mimic it in the case of England. And the reason they're not comfortable with that, or some of the Conservatives, particularly around Boris Johnson, is because their version of the union, which I don't think quite fits the English nationalist model, but is almost a kind of Anglo-British nationalism, if you like, is, and is certainly a very centralising take on the union, is really about sort of resettling the union. So there's sort of not, I think, abolishing devolution, but nibbling away at its edges, getting this central government to be more active, to be, you know, to spend more money in Scotland and Wales, as it now can do, and being more present in the lives of citizens there. And that, it seems to me, is quite, there's a sort of direction of travel in the thinking of British conservatism there. And I think it's it's sort of tacitly imagined as a sort of English-orientated project. I mean, how much 
appeal that really has to English voters, I, I generally, I don't think we know as yet. But that's a different kind of project to the, the sort of English nationalism as in it's England needs to be freed from the Union and so on. There are some voices who've made that argument. And it does, that idea, I think, is much more familiar. It does float around British politics more than it did 10 or 20 years ago. I'm less convinced it's the direction, though, in which the Conservatives will go. I think they're more likely to go all in for this. We've really got to push back against aspects of devolution and have a sort of more activist central state. The union state needs to be liberated from these shackles that we've created. Now, if they do go in that direction, and imagine five years' time, the SNP come back as a political force, which is entirely imaginable, then you've really got the potential, I think, for a very big political collision, another Anglo-Scottish collision, which will be of a much greater scale than we've seen even during Brexit. I think the other thing I'd say about a Labour government, I mean, clearly, if there is a Labour government in at the UK level, and they do well in Scotland and Wales, that, that will have a settling effect upon the union. I wonder for how long I mean, this is this is not 1997. That was the last period when Labour came in with that result. And of course, it came in after these many years of Conservative rule. So there you see the parallel. But when it did come in, its response to the legitimacy question that had blown up in Scotland was this very big devolution reform that we've been discussing. What's Labour's response now? to that moment and to the and to now a much more uh, significant degree of support for the idea of independence which has survived has continued to be fairly high despite the SNP's travails it doesn't really have a big package now and that's why it was quite interesting that the Gordon Brown commission which Starmer put in play came up with this idea made it a big thing and there's not there's not much sense that Starmer and his team have an appetite for that kind of very big constitutional reform in these areas. So I think that's one interesting question. What will Labour do to deliver on the bargain for Scotland? And then I think the other point is, you know, we all know what the economic circumstances are going to be. We all have a sense of the, the challenges that arise for whichever party is in government. What if Labour fails? What if Labour is engulfed? In government and people in Scotland think even a Labour government is not able to deliver the things that we value or to rectify our position after all these years of Conservative rule. That, I think, would really, again, put sort of rocket boosters under the territorial politics of the Union in years to come. So this is the last question. I'm now going to ask you whether the UK is going to survive. I was very struck reading your book by what you say about your experiences of interviewing people at the centre of government and of both the administrative state and politics, their sense of pessimism about the future of the union. It's almost as though in the middle of the 20th century, people believed in it, they couldn't quite say why. And now they don't believe in it, and they can't quite say why. But there's a kind of aura of doom about it. Because the things that you've talked about just there, it's very contingent, like it could go lots of different ways. And yet there's that feeling that it doesn't stack up anymore. And something's going to give. Now, this could be because that's a general feeling that we all have about the 21st century, which is quite a scary century to think about looking forwards. Very hard to imagine what the world's going to be like in 10 years, 20 years' time. The UK feels like a relic in some ways of a past that may be swept away. Politics is very volatile at the moment, exceptionally globally volatile. Things are going to happen in the UK, which which are tame by comparison with what's going to happen in other parts of the world. You know, a shift from a Rishi Sunak to a Keir Starmer government doesn't even register on the global panicometer compared to some things that might happen in 2024. But there are other longer term trends that clearly are at work here. And one that you point out is that Scottish independence support has held up and it's strong among younger voters, strikingly strong among younger voters, which does suggest at least one possible direction of travel. Now, I'm going to ask you a different question. You've made comparisons as other people have between the UK and other national units that are under some kind of strain. Spain is one, Canada is another. But the US is also under strain. And what made me think of this was an article I read recently. I, like many people, I've read too many articles recently about Harvard and its travails. But this article had a very striking opening. Uh, it was written by Greg Conti in a magazine called Compact. And it began 
more or less by saying, you know, Harvard's made a mess of itself. But nonetheless, the author was confident that Harvard would outlive the United States by as long as it predated the United States. Harvard is a much more durable institution than the USA, which is a more contingent arrangement. Harvard is a wealthy private club. They tend to survive. These political arrangements don't. The UK is a lot, well, in its origin, in the the original union, the Anglo-Scottish Union, is a longer-lived political unit than the United States of America. Not by a lot, but by a significant amount. The USA, all my life, I've taken it for granted that it will just continue, but it might not. So this is the question I'm going to ask you. If you had to put your money, <laughs> which one's got more shelf life left in it, the United Kingdom or the United States of America? Hmm. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting one to close on. I'm, I'm not a betting man, but I will, I will, I will try to make myself one for this. I mean, I, I would put my money on the US not the UK, for the simple reason, if we're thinking about this as a sort of territorial, in territorial terms as an entity, which, because whilst undoubtedly, I think the US is much closer to a sort of real crisis in terms of, of, of its institutions and its democratic practice and, and some of that sort of wider ethos of democracy, particularly if there is another Trump administration, the sort of Secession is not an option that is easily available to American states. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's, I mean, effectively been taken off the table since the Civil War and would require an immense constitutional sort of conflict and process to revive. Now, it's not impossible. Who knows? It's not impossible that, that certainly you might hear echoes of, of that kind of uh, political rhetoric returning in parts of the US. But by comparison, whereas I think in the UK, British democracy is not in great shape. Uh, I think there are a whole number of different ways, not not particularly to do with devolution necessarily, in which local engagement participation, particularly in England, is very low. Citizen trust in terms of politics and government is is that a real sort of has really ebbed away. And our institutions have been shown to be pretty uh, lacking in key respects. So I think whilst I do think we have our travails, I don't think we're near to that moment of crisis that will happen in the US. But at the same time, we're closer, I think, to a territorial moment than I think our political administrative class like to think. And the most obvious, it seems to me, the most obvious case in point, though, or the possibility there is in relation to Northern Ireland. And whilst, in a sense, if Northern Ireland were to become a sort of a constitutional crisis to break there, that's perhaps less impactful and less less likely to have the sort of impact that the Anglo-Scottish Union breaking would have. It's still a very big thing to happen in British politics and would, I think, have all sorts of effects upon the British political mindset. So I think it's, you know, on that score, even whilst I'm not predicting the breakup of Britain, I don't think this is this is in any way imminent. And I still think it's more likely than not that Northern Ireland will remain within the UK until at least, say, 2040. We are closer in some ways. We're more proximate to this sort of crisis than I think the conduct of our politics tends to imply. And really what I was trying to do in the book is to sort of say to people on the unionist side, you need to take more of a reckoning of that and think about what actually might be done at this point in time ahead of when the crisis breaks than just to sort of wait and be in entirely reactive mode. Mike Henney's book is out this week. You can get it wherever you get your books. Do please buy them from independent bookstores if you can. It's called Fractured Union, Politics, Sovereignty and the fight to save the UK. It is really interesting. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Rory Stewart about what it means to be a Tory, particularly what it means to be a Tory in the 21st century and the future of the Conservative Party. We're also going to be letting you know soon about the new series that we've got coming up on Past, Present, Future this year. New series in the history of ideas. I'm going to be talking about the great political fictions, a series with Leia Ippi on the history of freedom and much else besides. To find out more about this podcast, about current and future episodes, do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership 
with the London Review of Books. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.